0: Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams, and I'm so glad that you made it to class this morning. Today, I want to take a moment to discuss a public policy issue that sh- shouldn't be as hard as we make it, and that is ending child poverty. It's estimated that 11 million children are living in poverty today. This includes one in seven children of color and one in six children under the age of five, marking children as the poorest age group in America. The national child poverty rate stands at about 16.9%, which is, you know, <laughs> crazy in and of itself. But there's a variations across states ranging from 8% to 27%. And from 2002 numbers, it indicates that about 15% of children under the 18 were living below the poverty line. The numbers soared as the child poverty rate more than doubled last year, and that is because of the expiration of the pandemic benefits. These aren't just numbers. These are a reflection of our values as a country. They are a reflection of the systematic barriers, racial disparities, and policy inadequacies that exacerbate child poverty. In basic terms, this is a choice. Each statistic that I stated represents a child facing the harsh realities of poverty while significantly hindering their access to basic needs, quality education, and healthcare. So I have a guest coming to the front of the class who leads an organization that's birthed out of the Poor People's Campaign in the 1960s that rightly stated that poverty in this country was and still is a political choice. And it's not merely an economic issue, but a moral imperative that calls for our collective action. Joining us at the front of the class to discuss this issue and more is Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson. He is the president and CEO of the Children's Defense Fund and the Children's Defense Fund Action. Council, the Children's Defense Fund, which of course is a national child advocacy organization born out of the modern civil rights movement under the leadership of the great Marion Wright Edelman. Have you ever gotten a chance to hear her speak or like talk to you? You just like feel so uplifted and you just like, you can do anything, you can do anything in the world <laughs> with being in her presence. But before joining CDF, Reverend Wilson was president and CEO of Deaconess Foundation, which is a faith-based philanthropy for child well-being and racial justice in St. Louis. He also served as a pastor in the city of St. Louis and founded a community action tank. We love that here at Sunday Civics which engaged thousands of citizens annually. And he was also appointed co-chair of the Ferguson Commission, which released that report, which we talked about, Forward Through Ferguson, A Path Toward Racial Equity. And that calls for sweeping changes in policing, the courts, child well-being, and economic ability. That was back in 2015. So in addition to the work that he does now, he also serves on the board for Duke Divinity School, the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Welcome to the front of the classroom. For the first time, Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson. Hello.
1: Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be with you on Sunday Civic.
0: Thank you so much. And, you know, as usual, we ask all of our guests to tell us a little story. Now, I know, you know, you you, 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 church people. So I got to give you a preempt. <laughs> well, you can't do a 30-minute story. No, I'm sorry. Tell us the story of your first Civic Action.
1: Yeah, uh, never tell the preacher to take their time, right? So, absolutely. (laughs) So, actually, I want to focus on one that really was about civics um, and civic engagement. When I was in high school, I went to, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and went to the Magnet Center for Government Law and Law Enforcement. Uh, So, we talked about it as Law Magnet, one of two high schools in the country that had its own law library. Uh, And while I was in high school, we were in the city of Dallas thinking about how we would change. Our elective governance. Um, So going from a representative system that had city council members elected from each district to go in like a 10-4-1 system with regional representatives. Um, and we were dealing with and wrestling with what the racial representation impact of that would be uh, when I was a student there at, um, at at Law Magnet. And so one of the things I had the opportunity to do was to model and serve as the vice mayor, if you will, um, put in air quotes here, as the vice mayor of what would be the new city council chambers. Uh, and to model that out Um, So our little class uh, began to model for the city what these different expressions of governance could look like uh, and to be able to use some things that we've learned, including stuff I learned in church, like Robert's Rules of Order uh, and the youth department. Uh, to begin to play out what the impacts of making that shift would be. Um, I think that's really important. I, I can think of like protest actions and when I kind of stood up in defiance and those kind of things. But I use that example um, as you raise the question, because I think showing people what uh, the world could be like um, with systems that are transformed uh, and that are changed to reflect the representation of our people uh, in governance Uh, is really a a deep part of my being today. So uh, how might we do things differently to make sure everybody gets heard uh, was really what that project was about in high school. Uh, And that's what the project is about. We're trying to lift up the voices of young people today. Mm.
0: You know, that's interesting. you know, as a person of faith, you know, we always believe in, you know, the confirmation of things that you're, you know, feeling that got laid on your heart. And You know, I've been reading a lot and just listening to interviews of folks talking about what a future looks like without fighting oppression, right? Like, what does it look like when you don't have to, you know, beat back the man, the system, where you can just be everything that we're fighting for, right? When we get to that place, what does it look like to be there? And at the same time, like my speaking agency asked me to think about what talks I would give over the next two years as they start marketing me and everything. And one of ones that, you know, I started putting notes together for was, are you ready for nation building? Right. If we get to a space, um, which I believe we can, and I believe that there are spaces we can create where we can, you know, create our own sort of oasis, (laughs) you know, separate from oppression and systems. But if we do that, are you ready for nation building? Because that requires a lot of commitment. It requires a lot of investment. It requires a lot that I'm not sure people are really focusing on, right? That, you know, after we, you know, arrive at a space, you know, are you ready? But not only that, there are some concrete things that our ancestors from just the 40s and 50s didn't have that right. we can do, but it's lacking commitment. It's, you know, as the kids say, it's given, not ready for the fight. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And part of the great challenge, of that, I love that question, right? Because part of the great challenge uh, of that uh, is a challenge to imagination. Mm-hmm right how might we conjure prophetic imagination do can we see another world uh being possible what are the spaces that are created for that cuz i i actually think that we don't we can't wait to a point certain to start nation building right it is actually the work of um yeah, frank we we're, we're unfortunately in wartime now um mm-hmm. uh, but it is a it is the work of peacetime uh seed planting uh, to be ready for the flourishing work of nation building uh and You must understand yourself with an idea, with an orientation toward flourishing and thriving and wellness and well-being, um, not anti anything else. Right. Not stopping negative things from happening. And so that's a more creative challenge for us. And I think you're right. We, We are blessed at Children's Defense Fund to have inherited this kind of tradition and this idea that we need to be able to hold space to go away uh, to create a container for us to dream and imagine. Um, in the early 1990s, Mayor Wright Edelman, our founder, purchased the um, final home of Alex Haley, a farm in Clinton, Tennessee, uh, and began to cast a vision for that as a folk school from the kind of civil rights and Danish history, a place where we would learn and teach and exercise the behaviors we wanted in our communities, it was a place of dreaming and laughter uh, and fun and joy um, that once you came through those gates, then you get to uh, have the space to dream and create and imagine differently and prayerfully take that with you when you return to the world. Um, But I think that's that's how we start that work as a place where we do training for young people, a place where we bring clergy who are willing to commit to the fight uh, and learn about these issues with young people. And I think that's the kind of space you're talking about. Um, So Haley Farm is that for us. And frankly, CDF wouldn't exist in its expressions today if that time wasn't taken to do exactly what you're talking about. So I look forward to hearing those talks you give
0: on it. <laughs> well, I want to move into talking about children's defense fund and and tell you the reason why I sought you out. So you know, I'm I'm thinking about the and trying to take the audience through how through civic engagement and particularly through public policy, we can address some of the challenges and opportunities that exist in our society. And w- Particularly those things that we can agree on no matter political party, you know, no matter, you know, religious or not and, you know, identity or not, like some things that some basics that we can all agree on. Yeah. And one of which is that no child in the United States, no child's period, but let's start here. No child in the United yeah. States should live in poverty and that we should collectively be focused on the well-being of a child in our care, right? And that requires us to believe that we are responsible collectively for all of the children uh, in the United States, right? But I think we can collectively agree there should not be a child in the United States who goes to bed hungry, who doesn't have a roof over their head, who doesn't have the opportunity for quality education, who doesn't, like, there are just some basics there. Right. And That's if right. we can start from there rather than, you know, starting from the book banning and the control of school budgets and thing, you know, all of that kind of stuff. If we start from the premise that we all agree X, then we can decide, okay, we're going to invest and here are the resources we're going to invest, the structures we need to be put in place in order to yeah. execute this, you know, thing that we all want to see happen. And yeah. you know, that really just comes of the, the political fight of whether or not to extend child tax credit, you know, WIC, the farm bill and who's getting money and what to just refocus and start from no child <laughs> in the United States should be this. And I wonder, yeah. reading all of the statistics that talk about child poverty rate going backwards and how we yeah. we have a plan for this, we we know how to fix it, yet. We do not, <laughs> you know, so I wonder where Children's Defense Fund sort of sits in that, that focus and in trying to get people to that X point, right? We can all agree here, let's build the house around it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I appreciate your framing um, and, and laying out the data because that gives me uh, a chance to be a preacher and do more storytelling. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so a couple of things. Number one, we do understand this to be a moral call. Um, And so CDF has been working for 30 years with folks of faith in communities very specifically because we see this as something rooted and grounded in our faith traditions, that there is a call to this. So how do we get to the point where we have common agreement that no child should go hungry and that no child should live in poverty or wrestle with the degradation that comes from that? Uh, One of the ways we can get there is by studying closely our sacred texts. Uh, we can go back uh, and see the vision in Isaiah that um, that this peaceable community, the peaceable kingdom, some texts say, where the lion lays down with the lamb and the little child leads them is ushered in with the promise of a toddler who gets miraculous things done that don't happen otherwise. We can uh, go back and see uh, in Deuteronomy that the portion of a seaside of the land, but that's not a fatalistic promise. It's actually a call and a challenge to us. Uh, and we can go back uh, to the psalmist uh, who says to us uh, that happy is the man who has his quiver full of children. The children are a gift from the Lord and see this as a challenge and a call to care for those who are given to us who do not have capacity in this economy and in this uh, democracy to care for themselves. So the first thing is we understand and appreciate the moral call. And begin to engage in the same kind of traditions of moral suasion that we have inherited from people like Martin King, uh, who is talking about this impact on children and calling for a universal basic income in his final years of life, uh, who is wrestling with the economic system. Uh, So we ground ourselves in our sacred text. We lean into the authority of what we have inherited in the tradition, telling us that this is a part of our moral responsibility. We hear King, um, 60th anniversary recently, of course, of the March on Washington, not just for the I have a dream, but we hear the economic justice speech he has given, and we understand the responsibility to carry forth this challenge. So that's part of how we get there, is we study our text. We consider our traditions and our history that call us to this moment. Based upon the things we've already given assent to. And then we learn the statistics and we learn our approaches the way that you have named them out. Uh, we begin to be able to talk about um, the impact of the child tax credit uh, in reducing child poverty in America and knowing that the lack of moral capacity and courage is what allowed us to be re- allowed it to be retracted. So child poverty doubles. Uh, In 2022, from where it was in 2021. And we understand that as a moral failing, that is a call to people of faith to do something about it. And then understanding the statistics and knowing that we can actually get things done with a policy intervention like the child tax credit, we say, oh, it's now our responsibility to make sure that that thing is permanent. Because we also know, looking at a global perspective, all English speaking developed nations have something like a permanent child allowance. So let's figure out how we get one for our kids here in the United States of America. Uh, And then we begin to look at our churches, synagogues, mosques, and temples, not just as spaces of sanctuary for us, but spaces of strategy and capacity building to advance the movement that we say we want when we read these scriptures publicly. If it's the case that God wants a child to be able to play in a public space, uh, even amidst things that looked dangerous before, lion, lamb together. If the miraculous can happen in a peaceable community and a toddler being able to play freely is a sign of that, then it's our job to make it happen. So so now I look at my congregation. I pastor for 10 years. I look at my congregation and say, yes, these are people I've got to care for. And this is indeed God's force for change in the world. And so my uh, religious home, also then becomes my political home, not political in the sense of party, but a political in the sense that it's about who gets what, when, where and why. And political in the sense that this is a powerful force for social movement, that if I can get everybody in my congregation registered to vote and I can get all of them to communicate with our Congress people about the need to advance the child tax credit, then I can bring moral voice to a moment like this one when we can actually make this happen.
0: I agree with you, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people that would sit in the congregation would agree with you as well. But how do you make the connection or the distinction to people who believe that, yes, my faith tells me that, my scripture tells me that, and yes, I will do that in my individual charitable contributions, but not in my politics? Why don't people often make that connection that it should speak not just in the charity work, but in your political um, work as well.
1: Yeah, I think some of this has to do with um, the frames that we've accepted in the life of the church. um, uh, uh, A Western post-Enlightenment distinction or Enlightenment era distinction between the sacred and the secular um, that um, don't fit uh, when we lean into our kind of cultural roots, especially in African-American communities and think about African cosmologies. The reality is, all these things are connected. There is no kind of solid door uh, between um, between the church and the community that uh, the church serves. Um, that uh, when I was pastor, I had to be thoughtful about the fact that I was called by people who had membership in the church, but I was called to a local community that was wrestling with uh, being unhoused. I had unhoused folks sleeping on the steps of the church, so I was called to them, even though they didn't get a vote. Um, so part of the work that is sustainable for the transformation that I um, understand God to want in the world um, has to be structured, right? In order for the intervention to be sustainable, it has to be structured. In order for our change to be, uh, to redound to the benefit of generations, it has to be systemic. So yes, I can support the local food pantry and I should do that. And it makes me feel good to do that. But if I actually believe in a world where those without money can come eat and drink, as Isaiah says, then actually I have to create interventions that support not just the individual person who's hungry, but to make sure we provide for all people to eat. So now I may need to learn something about the local food distribution system. I may need to learn something about the Department of Agriculture and the Agriculture Bill and how it impacts the USDA allocations and whether they're going to give universal free school meals in my local school district, because I'm not just interested in feeling good because I helped somebody. I'm interested in making sure that people eat because there is enough on God's earth. And so the way I can have an impact on that is to say, you know what, there's no reason. I've learned the policy. Universal free school meals save school districts money. They keep children from being shamed in line when they have to say that they're eligible to get a free lunch versus not getting a, a free lunch. And it makes sure that young people have the nutrition they need to be able to learn. That that feel like a God thing to me. <laughs> uh, so, so so why why don't I try to make that happen? Right, right. And so I think we just need to open the aperture for what it means to serve our God, however we come to know God, um, and to say, "We, I want to serve God sustainably. I do not want to be fighting the same fight tomorrow." There's a lot of other things that I could be um, seeking God for uh, and seeking society to serve the interest Uh, of the vision i believe god wants for the world
0: so you know me and god have very interesting relationship as i'm sure everybody has we speak we speak plain in my spirit right it's you know i often imagine god like when we're seeking god for like god has done something and god is like i done already told you (laughs) why are you asking me for this thing When I've already provided this stuff on here. Like you remember when you were a kid and you would come back and forth to your parent or whatever and they'd be like, Didn't I already say what and I feel like God every once in a while just like annoyed my husband had this whole bit and I, we talk about God in the Old Testament was literally annoyed at us all the time. It is. <laughs> it is God is yes. just like, oh yes. my God, I created the most needy living thing ever. I done put stuff on the earth for you and you find all different types of way to restrict yourself and other people from it. Don't, don't come to me no more. Don't <laughs> come no more about no, this thing.
1: And, and, honor, honor your agency, right? This is part of it, right? so, so why would we not uh, fully engage with the capacity, the choice and the agency that God has given us, right? Why do we draw distinctions, right? I, you know, you went Old Testament when I used to teach stewardship lessons, um Stewardship is not just about a tithe, right? I, I appreciate brothers and sisters who need to you know, do this. It's, you know, it's October. It's Stewardship Month in most churches, yeah, right? This is any- where we get ready for next year, right? So so, so these, that's really important. But stewardship is about all that is placed in our care. And the same resources that in the Old Testament they were giving to care for uh, all people is what we would call taxes today, right? So the thing that covers for community infrastructure, that's taxes. So, yes, you should be a good steward of what you invest for the advance of ministry. You should be you should manage well what you have to support your household. But you're still responsible for what you paid in taxes. How can you be a good steward over the taxes? Well, the responsible way to be a good steward over the public trust is to engage in the public dialogue about the allocation of resources, which is public policy. If I don't engage in the conversation, God giving me capacity, God's giving me agency, I paid some taxes, how those taxes get spent in my local school district, how those taxes get spent in city hall, how those taxes get spent and allocated in the U.S. House of Representatives is my responsible stewardship. And if I have no voice in that because I didn't vote for a representative to to steward my interests, and because I don't hold them accountable, I don't know what happened with the budget. I don't know how they spend in the school district money. Then I'm not the steward that I say I am. Because I tithe, I'm responsible to be a good steward over that as well. And so, public civic engagement is part of what I understand to be the call to discipleship and good stewardship uh, for those of us who call ourselves Christians.
0: Mm. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics.
1: Like when the t schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the t I will let you know.
0: We are who talking to Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson, who is the president and CEO of the Children's Defense Fund. I want to read something. You know, the Time, Time magazine a, a couple of weeks ago <clears throat> did this whole piece about child poverty, which is very, very interesting. I suggest folks read it if you haven't. And then, you know, I went uh, because in this age of misinformation and disinformation, I tried to call out the steps that I actually do that I don't take information from one source. I go around. And <laughs> so, you know, I'm reading around the Washington Post, the National Inquiry, you know, like reading around what is the conversation around uh, childhood poverty. And there's some conversation about, whether or not the indicators that are used are the right ones. And, you know, obviously you can skew numbers and skew trends to, you know, say whatever you want. But one particular interesting piece that I wanted to bring up is uh, this quote from one of the pieces where it says, poverty is not only about money, but also inadequate and unstable housing, food insecurity, unmet medical needs, lack of opportunity and financial exploitation. And I yeah. I found myself saying, yes, right? Like when most people think about poverty, they think they don't have money and their parents don't have money. And not that mm-hmm. it, it is a complex web of things that are on the shoulders of the family that cares for that child, right? And I say the family yeah. because it could be a parent, it could be one parent, it can be you know, two parents, it could be grandparents, it can be an intergenerational household. So there are many different ways that children are cared for, not only in the United States, but across the across the world. And to talk about yeah. that complex web, if you will, that it's not just the money, right? It's not just providing the money. It is also about the different resources available to support you know be it housing so if if housing costs are going up how does that impact children you know if you don't have medical care how is that impacting children if you know yeah. you all of those kinds of things and then uh, you know i'm thinking about you said in the beginning about children just at play and people don't take into account just children being children and being able to play safely, goes yeah. into a well-being of a child, right? Like all, all of that. And then not seeing their caregivers stressed that all of those things matter. How is yeah. Children Defense Fund sort of approaching that thought? I think that most people have that poverty is just you don't have any money, not this complex yeah. web of things that <clears throat> help support the well-being of a child.
1: Yeah, a couple of ways. Number one, we're we're really beginning to think about and talk about um, making the shift from just stopping bad things from happening. Right. We tend to have these negative frames. Uh, We want to end child poverty. Uh, We want to reduce child abuse and neglect. Uh, We want to. uh, So and then shift to an asset based frame that's much more visionary. What we really want to do is we want to unleash the joy in growing up. -hmm. Right. You can not be poor. By whatever definition, and still not have joy. And we believe that childhood is best typified. Wellness in childhood is typified and expressed in joy. Uh, I tell people all the time, I know all the sociological definitions. I read the social work papers and the abstracts, but I got an eight-year-old daughter at home. When she is seen, when she is safe, and when she feels uh, secure, she sings and dances like nobody's watching, right? That's the picture of child well-being. And so part of it is We want to advance a conversation about child well-being. And by doing that, you're shifting the conversation from uh, just stopping child poverty uh, from an economic frame. And you're talking more about advancing economic mobility if you want to use that financial frame, which is about that old promise we used to talk about. Like in America, if you work hard, defer gratification, get an education, you can do better than your parents. That's economic mobility. I can do better than my parents. So what we want to talk about is how do we make sure kids can do better than us? How do we make sure they get to sing and dance with joy uh, in all their spaces? And then we begin to say, what's required for that? Well, they've got to be safe. they got to be secure. they got to be seen uh, in the public conversation. And so that's part of the shift that we're making. And the brilliance of the design of Children's Defense Fund that I can take no credit for, uh, but I have responsibility to help steward. Is that we recognize that you're not going to get that done just with programs. So, yes, we have a robust program um, called the Children's Defense Fund Freedom Schools operating in 30 states across the country where young people learn, they get the literacy impact they need, they have culturally relevant lessons where they learn about their history and their heritage and their identity and their agency, and we try to unleash that joy uh, and identity uh, for young people. Uh, so that's one way we have to do it, is we say we need to paint a picture and show people through direct services what it means to experience joy, freedom, and thriving. That is a broader contrast to the poverty you describe, right? Um, but then the other piece is we gotta pursue it in public policy. Um, so we've got folks in state houses across the country, staff and volunteers, and here in Washington, D.C., who are trying to push things like the Child Poverty Reduction Act, and we're trying to make sure that we can provide universal free school meals uh, through the USDA and Department of Agriculture. Um, So public policy is one of the ways that we're seeking to do that. But the other piece is you can make social change not just through policy and programs, but through power building, right? We know that we need People of faith. We need young people across the country, including students. We need parents and caregivers to have a perspective on this work. So we're doing convening, educating, and organizing and advocacy training with these folks. So they learn about these issues in the same way that you're teaching people about the issues every Sunday morning. Um, And then they know what they can do about it. So we help them to map, uh, to see what's happening in their communities, to map power, to figure out how they can impact it. And grounded both in their experiences as parents, as caregivers, as students um, and in their values as imams, as preachers, as pastors, as rabbis, that there are ways in which this is a part of who they already are. And so that's part of how we're seeking to get at that. But but most of how we're trying to do it is say poverty is not just about money. No, it's not. But as poor people. It is also about money, right? I, I used to be I used to be a grant maker, right? So I, I was a foundation leader and we made grants. And one of the things that we can do in philanthropy is we you you have this privilege. It's one of the least regulated spaces in American life. So you can make grants and then you can decide, you know, we want to put out reports. So we put out some reports and say, you decide, you know, we actually want to do some organizing ourselves. So we build this center and we start doing some organizing ourselves. And say, you know what, we can run a program. Let's start running a program. And then the people that you say you want to serve say, hey, you're sitting on millions of dollars. I appreciate that you're running this program, but your primary job is to cut the check. So I said it to say (laughs) it's important for us, especially middle class folks like myself who who have known poverty but don't know it in the same intimate ways right now to say, yes, poverty is not just about money. And that is a privileged assessment, because when you broke and when you're poor and when you're wrestling to serve your kids, It is about money, too. So let's not jump past that. It's a bigger thing. But let's be clear. Some of these we we learned with the child tax credit. When you give mama some money, things get better. You know, it opens up uh, summer programs that kids can go to before. It makes sure that you come to know your your children. I got three teenage boys in my house. Uh, I only know them and what they look like by the light of the refrigerator. I was getting ready to say, God bless your refrigerator and uh, your food budget. so I need that child tax credit to show up monthly, right? If I'm if I'm wrestling with that, like many mothers are, like many parents are across the country, if I'm wrestling with that, don't send me the child tax credit once a year uh, when I file my taxes. I need that thing to come monthly. I need to be inclusive. Uh, I need it to show up when them grocery bills show up. And so, yes, it's more than it's more than money, and it is about money. Mm.
0: <laughs> we are talking to Reverend Dr. Wilson of the Children's Defense Fund. You know, I want to ask you about something else because you know, you talk about your time serving as a pastor, and clearly you view your work through a faith lens. And, you know, yeah. we talked about this a little bit before, of um, about, you know, churches being serving as a space and serving. In what we have known it to be a historical context where the church, which was part of the institution of community, was, you know, an integral part of the movement for justice. And that is everything from justice in terms of police brutality, in terms of voting, in terms of child well-being, you know, you name it, right? The church was at the center, And, you know, now, and this is not just from a national standpoint, because certainly we can point to individuals, you know, within the overall movements that are participatory and churches that are participatory. But, you know, talking to organizers and folks from across the country, we often talk about just the lack of engagement from our community churches in this overall work. And certainly post-COVID, where I know a lot of churches are just even struggling to get people back into church. It seems like the movement right now from a church perspective is just come back to church. (laughs) Like, can I get you to come in, you know, um, in one instance? And then, you know, I, as head of an NAACP branch, quite often want to go, I know the church doors are open, but can you come outside? (laughs) Yes. Can y'all come out here Indeed. to experience and engage what people, you know, are experiencing. And I, I joked with you of us being, yeah. you know, kids and be like, can you come outside? Are you on punishment? Like, what's happening?
1: Yeah. <laughs> what's
0: happening? Maybe I, it's, God put everybody on punishment and we just didn't know. Everybody got sat down. I don't
1: know. Uh, it, it felt like that in 2020. Uh, uh, you know, we did feel like we were on punishment. I, I think you, you you name well, like, this wrestling that churches are doing uh, in this moment, uh, with their own kind of models of, uh, sustainability and support. Um, but also again, I think, uh, I believe ecclesiastical problems are theological in nature, right? So I think first we got to deal with, we have, we really do have to wrestle with what are we here for? Uh, who is the God we serve, uh, and how do we, um, how do we find ourselves to serve that God in the world? Um, so so these are really important frames. Um, and so to get beyond getting people just back into the church, uh, some of it is uh, coming to understand whether we are Jesus Christians or Paul Christians. Um, that both find themselves in their work on the countryside. They find themselves in their work among people uh, who are wrestling with everyday challenges. They locate themselves there, and then they find themselves in service uh, on the road, if you will. And so I think that's part of the call for us. But the other on the theological thing is, I, I actually, Frank, we need to wrestle a little more uh, with the things that are informing us. Um, uh, I When I pastored it was, I made very few things mandatory. I didn't think you can make grown ups do stuff. Um, but when you begin to teach things, um, the congregation makes them mandatory for those that will advance to leadership. Um, so I taught regularly, um, Obri Hendricks, The Politics of Jesus, um, that took uh, Jesus uh, and placed Jesus in a social location uh, and talked about the political commitments of the Jesus of the New Testament um, that included things like treat the people's needs as holy, um, call the demon by name. like These lessons that we see in the life of Jesus help to locate the work of the church. If this is what Jesus is up to, if we are the body of Christ, then this is our responsibility to do. But I think this requires us reading the text differently. Especially, look, I grew up black and Baptist. (laughs) Black and Baptist mean, I don't care what you say if it ain't in the Bible, and I don't care what you say if Jesus didn't do it, Jesus didn't say it. Like This is where the authority lies. We say, we don't really believe this. We say it's about scripture alone. We don't really believe that. But that's what we need in order for something to have authority. So we need to do that. We actually need to do our social justice work at our congregation, began in Bible study, began in leadership development. And it wasn't about studying issues. It was about studying the scripture. It was about studying the scripture. It was about studying the traditions, about understanding how Christ operated in the world. So I think how we get people out is by changing what we do in, right? How do we come to understand Jesus not as individual savior for me, but we understand Jesus as salvific expression for the world, who models not just in his death, but in his life, how you care for those you walk with. And if we begin to study that, I'm speaking to the Christian now, if we begin to study that as Christians, then we begin to come outside differently. Because Jesus generally only ended up in the synagogue to disrupt stuff. Mm Hmm so he was, outside, he was in the our... streets
0: most of the time i'm just saying <laughs> he, was, he was in the streets right. most of the time at least that's what i you know that's what i read <laughs> yeah
1: and we're called and we're called to be found where christ was found yeah right among the marginalized and the oppressed um and so i think these are the questions we've got to wrestle with um to be faithful. And then the other thing, I'll just be deeply political about this, right? I think we need to find, and pastors, leaders need to find for themselves communities of support for this kind of thinking, uh, for this kind of sharing. Uh, For me, the Sammy DeWitt Proctor Conference has been that since I was in seminary. Uh, I rock with friends that are more evangelical, uh, generally in Sojourners, uh, around kind of the social justice thinking, because I've got friends who are deeply evangelical in that space as well. Um, and I found space for, uh, for rooting and reconciliation and thinking uh, around these issues across race and around children's issues. First, before I worked at Children's Defense Fund at Children's Defense Fund's annual institute for child advocacy ministry at Haley Farm. So like, I'm not going to, it's such a subversive work to how the church has worked that no pastor or church leader is going to do it by themselves and on their own. Um, They actually need communities of support around this work. And so I think finding those networks is really critical for sustaining it as well.
0: Yeah. You know, it made me, I I can't remember who brought this up. I I don't know if it was a talk I was at or in general conversation, because I have a lot of, you know, friends and family members who, you know, the pastor of my church is my cousin, (laughs) right? Like some families uh, in there. And they talked about like the text for where in which Black preachers use, right? In their, not only in their education, but thus in their ongoing pastoring, in their ongoing ministry. The source is not from the Black tradition, right? They're getting their books, their, you know, sample yeah. texts and sort of all that kind of stuff comes from an evan- yes, from an evangelical sort of tradition, but not out of a black tradition. Right. And so what does that say about where that even your source of commentary and your source of analysis, you know, of your faith is not from, you know, your own viewpoint is not from your own people is not from your own thought process. Then it's tainted, right. Because you're, you know, uh, trying to make people live in a world that is, is not like theirs.
1: Yeah. And this is part of the history that we wrestle with. Right. First, um, the the lack of access to higher education uh, for um, for African-Americans and thus African-American clergy. Um, and so a reliance on resources that one doesn't have the capacity to vet in the way that you vet uh, the, the kind of dialogue around child poverty by looking at multiple sources. Then we give popular access. You get popular access to the things that uh, the majority wants. The majority purchases and the majority assents to. And that doesn't serve the same purpose of those who have been oppressed uh, by that majority over time. And so, what you begin to have, even in the life of the Black church, is um, uh, this is part of what, not the whole thing, but part of what um, the Honorable Senator Raphael Warnock is talking about when he names the divided mind of the Black church Uh, a deeply conservative social ethic and a deeply um, um, progressive, uh, conservative personal ethic and piety, but this kind of social ethic around transformation. And then you're trying to figure out how do we make this stuff fit? Mm-hmm. Uh, how does it go together, right? So Black social gospel helps to do that. So King and Sam Proctor and others help to inform the Hall, help to inform how to bring those two things together. But when you're getting all of your Sunday school materials mm-hmm. uh, from, you know, expressions that are not um, affirming of Black and Black community. When you are trained, once you get access, you go to school. I grew up in Dallas, Texas, man. When I understood myself to be called a ministry, the first text I was reading were like post-tribulation dispensationalists out of like Lewis Schaefer and others uh, who informed Dallas Theological Seminary. Um Much more conservative than my viewpoint, but I didn't have a view on what to read. I just knew I felt called and I needed to prepare. And these are the things I had access to in the Christian bookstore uh, from across the way. And so a lot of folks start that way. Uh, It's one of the things, one of the reasons why I say go to these conferences, find these convenings. If you can, get yourself to a theological higher education, be intentional about where you choose to go there, because who you read impacts what you write, including what you write into your sermons. Um, but you got to get to a point where you understand that you can test and try those things. I, but I can't, I can't be preaching no Lewis Schaefer. No, uh, that just, that perspective doesn't ride with me and my community anymore. But I also had to put myself in a place where I began to understand that God speaks to me through my community. That's what I say. Like when I say, you know, we say we scripture alone, but we really don't do that. Hey, big mama be preaching the gospel. Yeah. Right. So once I affirm that my, Uh, matriarchal, matrilineal black community is one of the ways that God speaks to me. Once I affirm that all people really are blessed by God with a certain endowment and the capacity to tap into the spirit, then my eight year old can preach me a sermon. Right. And it don't have to be structured right, but she can bring me a word. And once I affirm that, then I question this view that says, no, God only speaks through men who look like this, who have been to this place. And and my community helps me to do that. But I need a political frame and I need a place to begin to affirm uh, the reality of my community uh, as being a place where God dwells as well. The spirit fell upon all flesh. Sons and daughters prophesied. It didn't jump from one to the other. Um, that's the Pentecost story, right? Uh, once I can read the text that way, then I can begin to challenge some of these other things and affirm my own communities' read on the text.
0: Hey there, friends! This is political strategist Eljoy Williams, your civics teacher, and the host of Sunday Civics here on Sirius XM Urban View Channel One Twenty Six. If you can't wait until Sunday to get your next civics lesson, head on over to our website at sundaycivics.org. There, you can watch full guest interviews, download new shows, and get resources to take civic action in your community. Remember, civic engagement doesn't begin and end on Election Day, and it certainly takes more than showing up every four years. Visit sundaycivics.org and learn how to take civic action in your community. How can it be? You love the most unlovable, I mean, I mean. And now, back to Sunday Civics, the show for the civically engaged. We are talking to Reverend Dr. Sarsky Wilson, who is the president and CEO of the Children's Defense Fund. I'm a woman of a certain age, and I remember <laughs> the little UNICEF boxes. Do you remember those where we used to collect <laughs> Coins and things. I don't know. Can I tell yes. my age that much. Okay, so I remember, you know um, that.
1: We, I, I got a little gray on you. So yeah, I get. We it.
0: were collecting things for, um, children outside of this country, right? Because it just yep. it was unfathomable that in the United States of America, this great country, all of the glory that they taught us talking about the Western story that is told about the United States, that there is no child that can live in abject poverty like the rest of the world, like they're showing us on TV with the flies about their face and everything. And yet we now know that there are children and families living in some of those same conditions here in the United States. As we wrap up, um, we talked a lot about what leadership should do and can do. And you've also talked about how those of us who, whether we're sitting in the pews on Sunday or doing bedside Baptists, it shouldn't be <laughs> doing to connect our faith to our politics and public policy. I wonder if you will, you know, you at the crescendo, you at the end end telling people, what they need to do, what the individual needs to do, and some action steps or things that they can do, this person of faith or or not, that can address the issue of poverty, particularly amongst children.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, I'll say a few things. Number one, I I do believe that um, the life of faith begins with a commitment to devotion. A really helpful devotional tool that I've used uh, in this work uh, is uh, a poem by Ina Hughes called We Pray for Children. And so I I encourage folks to just Google that poem, We Pray for Children by Ina Hughes. Uh, Be thoughtful about putting that into your daily devotions uh, as a prayer for children in different circumstances, Uh, as a reminder of those who experience joy and those who experience challenge and uh, commit to reflect on the realities uh, for children as a part of your spiritual practice. That's one. Um, The second thing, I I invite people to be thoughtful about um, and ask their congregational leadership about their synagogue, their mosque, their leadership about um, how we center not just children, but children's issues in the life of our church. Where do we study that? Uh, Where might we spend time on that? Uh, And we have resources for folks at the Children's Defense Fund uh, at childrensdefense.org. We've got a whole mobilization called a National Observance of Children's Sabbaths that occurs every October on the third full weekend where we provide resources where we're showing people about some of these issues. Giving people models for how they can use do a child watch in their community, come explore what's happening in the schools or see what's happening uh, in the local courts around children's issues, and do that as a group. So consider a child watch. Be thoughtful about an opportunity to you can begin to learn about things that are happening around children's issues in your community. And then finally, I invite people to be thoughtful about um, whether their um, <laughs> whether their religious home has a political home. Uh, Is your church, synagogue or mosque connected to a network where you could regularly, uh, just like you are in your denominational expressions, where you can regularly be involved in a public witness that is based in your faith? That may be through a network like Faith in Action or the Gamaliel Network. Uh, uh, It may be uh, with the Religious Action Center if you're a Jewish uh, community. Uh, It could be with Children's Defense Fund Uh, if you wanna gather with us at our annual Institute for Child Advocacy Ministry and learn about these things or support a local freedom school uh, or host one so you get closer to the issues because they're actually in your fellowship hall uh, every summer. These are the ways I invite people to come to engage with the issues. And I have a firm belief. This is my theology showing up. um, I believe that God has so um, created us that when we get sensitized to the issues through devotion, uh, through exploration and experience uh, and through accountability to a wider community, then we'll figure out the right things to do. Um, yes, I believe people should contact their Congress people. Yes, uh, there are specific things that we have on our website we can get around legislation. But I believe in discernment. I believe in the spirit and I believe in the community. And I don't believe if you can pray about these things, if you can experience these things and get to see them up close and then you can talk about them in the context of your community of accountability, that you won't do the right thing or do something about it. So those are my three steps.
0: Well, thank you, Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson, the president and CEO of Children's Defense Fund. We'll have to have you back to talk about a number of other things. (laughs) Thank you for making it to class this morning.
1: Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank
0: you. And thanks to all of you for making it to class this morning. We'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics and more information and lessons that you can use to get and stay civically engaged. Have a great one.